1: Well, hey, everybody,
0: and welcome to episode 82 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff. I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Man, I'm so thrilled to have David Kinneman back on the podcast. David's become a friend over the last few years. Those of you who are longtime listeners or subscribers, which is free, by the way, just go subscribe right now. You can jump right back to episode 24, where David and I sat down and had a fascinating conversation about why people are attending church less often. And we kind of pick it up today because we are talking about his brand new book that he just released with uh, Gabe Lyons and the ideas in it. It's called Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme. And I mean, I talk about this with David at the beginning of the interview, but my goodness, even in the last year, I feel like the cultural attitude toward church in North America has shifted. And it's become maybe a little more hostile, a little more irrelevant. It's just fascinating. And David, of course, with research, puts words to it. So I think you're going to love this today. We'll jump into that in just a minute. Thank you to everybody who continues to listen, share, subscribe, get the good news out. Uh, for all of you who are leaving ratings and reviews, thank you so much for that. If you haven't done that, you can do that on iTunes and make sure you spread the love too. If you go into the show notes, and this is just CarrieNewhoff.com slash episode 82, there's always some great quotes in there that you can share on social media. It's just a way of helping some of the ideas that maybe helped you help others. So whatever you can do to spread the love is awesome. And I'd love to know what you're up to. I know a lot of you tell me, hey, you listen when you run or in the car on the way to or from work, or you listen around the house or on your bike or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I would love to hear from you about what's going on at your church. What are the struggles you're facing? What are the good things you're doing? What are you having success with? You can always leave a comment, in the show notes. Just go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 82. I just love reading this stuff and love hearing from you. In terms of what's new in my life at Connexus Church, where I serve, we're pretty pumped because we just launched our online campus. It launched Easter Sunday. Uh, We are so excited to finally be able to do that. Worked really hard over the last few months with Chris Lemma from San Diego. Great guy. You can read him, chrislemma.com, L-E-M-A. Great guy uh, helped us totally redesign our website from scratch. It's finally, finally, finally not just mobile friendly; it's mobile optimal. It's basically a mobile site with uh, <laughs> with with an actual desktop version as well. It's so much better than our old site, and we're just hoping we can really use it to reach into our community in ways that we haven't before. Uh, Not only is it mobile-friendly, not only is there an online campus, but uh, we're super excited because everybody who wasn't in church on Sunday was online. And it's a chance for us to go to them even if they're not ready quite yet to come to us. So we're working really hard on SEO optimization and we're working really hard to try to build bridges to the community. So if you want to check out some of that, you can do that at connexuschurch.com. You can just go there, C o n n e xuschurch.com. That's where I serve. That's where I teach. And it has been just a lot of fun. And I just think that there's going to be an awful lot in the future of going out to where people are rather than expecting them to come to you always. And so that's a little bit of a prequel to my conversation with David Kinneman because I think our online presence makes a really big statement as to who we are to the community and about how we interact with them long before they ever enter our door. And maybe, maybe one of the reasons that a growing number of people don't want to enter our door is because of the way we interact with them online. So anyway, that's what I've been up to. I've been heavily involved in that website redesign uh, in terms of the messaging on it and then in terms of the online campus. Uh, So it's been a lot of fun and would love your feedback on that too. You can just go to connexuschurch.com. But in the meantime, let us jump right into my conversation with David Kinnaman. Well, I am so excited to have David Kinnaman back on the podcast. Welcome
1: back, David. Thanks for having me, Kerry.
0: Hey, so things continue to change. You were on just over a year ago where we talked about some of the latest Barna research about declining church attendance and why millennials weren't engaging. And I kind of feel like it could have been five years ago. Do you ever get that opinion? I mean, you and I talk from time to time, but like it just feels like a lot has actually changed
1: yeah no doubt I mean the world seems to be accelerating obviously the election here in north america and, and uh, in uh in in the United States is huge on our minds uh, but oh, there's yeah. so yeah. Ter- global terrorism uh economic you know this uncertainty to the start of the year uh, you know, sort of just so many different questions that are coming up. And that's just, that's just the broader spectrum, not to mention what's happening within the Christian community and the pressures that we're facing. So it's a, it's a fun time, but it's definitely, it's definitely, it feels like a month is a year.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you, you would agree the culture seems to be changing more rapidly than it did even a few years ago.
1: Well, I, I think it is. It's it's part of our you know kind of globalized, interconnected world where where information obviously moves very quickly, and the digital revolution is part of that. Um, but this larger acceleration and frenetic pace that you know the idol of our age feels like you've got to be up to speed. I was hmm. driving. Um, I was driving home. Uh, a neighbor. She's a young Jewish woman from her college. And uh, and there was a Kelly Clarkson song on the radio, and I hadn't heard it before. And so I said, oh, is this a brand new new song? Have you heard this? And she's like, oh, no, this came out earlier this summer. Like, like, where were you? (laughs) And I was like, like, it's like, that's how things are. It's like, you know, if you're not up to speed, somehow, you know, there's something wrong with you.
0: David, wait till you hit my age. I, I pride myself on being like somewhat up to date. But like when I look at the top of the iTunes charts, I'm like, what? This is music? What? 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 Anyway, downloaded a bunch of stuff yesterday just to stay somewhat on trend. Um, So you got a brand new book out called Good Faith, which I would encourage people to pick up. It is a helpful contribution to a situation that we find ourselves in where we really don't know how to speak into the culture anymore. And so you and Gabe got back together uh, years after UnChristian, nine years now, you were saying, before we sort of went live and started recording. Why did you and Gabe decide it was time to sit down and write not just another book, but this book?
1: Well, I think part of... uh... The story is, is a fun one, which is our friendship. And so Gabe's one of my best mates mm. in the world. Mm. So it, with the story of UnChristian was we were working on a private research study that Gabe had commissioned around what we called the brand of Christianity. And and so we we decided at that time back in we actually did the research in 2004, 2005, that we wanted to take that that conversation, that set of data public And, um, and again, it was never designed to be a book. Um, it just turned into one because we felt like it was a fun and important conversation for the church to have. And the same thing actually happened with this project where we were working on a private study, uh, just together on a, on a task force, essentially looking at issues of how institutions, Christian colleges and universities and churches and other kinds of organizations, how they can flourish in this very complicated sort of aggressively hostile context. And as we were doing this research, uh, we started to see some things and Gabe and I, kind of looked at each other and said, you know, I think this is time for us to, to bring this information uh, public again, hmm. uh, you know, and, and so we didn't think of doing a book again together. It wasn't really part of the plan, but it's been almost a decade, and it's been a pleasure to work with Gabe again.
0: Yeah. So give us the big idea behind good faith. What, what are you writing? The subtitle, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme.
1: Well, the big idea behind it is that uh, we have pretty clear indications from the research that it's harder to be a Christian and harder to be a Christian leader in our culture today than it was even 10 years ago. Some Mm -hmm. of what we were beginning to see with non-Christian 16 to 29-year-olds, their perceptions of being anti-homosexual and judgmental, that now those were becoming very established in a broader culture, that the church was, was irrelevant is one problem. It means that the church is You know people can be indifferent to the church you don't have to worry about going to church on sunday it's like it just doesn't it's out of sight out of mind extremism is another problem which is that religion is part of the problem and 46 percent of americans believe that religion is part of the problem 42 percent believe that people of faith are part of the problem and so we we began to to see that there was um this sort of rising tide of hostility this perception that christianity is actually extremist and, and so the, the culture is saying Christianity needs to be actually actively removed. If you're extremist, we need to control you so that you don't let your extremism hurt the rest of us. Okay. And that's that's, that's the, new, the new dimension of this.
0: Right. So let's talk about that because the, you spend an awful lot of time, particularly at the beginning of the book, talking about the perception, and you've got research to back this up, right? It's not just opinion that Christians have become extremist. Now— you and I are recording this the day after the Belgium ad- attacks, the attacks in Belgium in the airport and, you know, on, on the trains. T- t- I think everybody would agree that's extremist. I mean, when you yeah. blow yourself up or other people up and you kill people in the name of religion, that's extreme. Um, and we have seen some Christians get violent, right? We've seen that on the streets. But this is not what you're talking about. It's not just like, extremist now has become this broad label where it's actually what, like a belief system that people are seeing as extreme?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So let me break this down. So if you think about violent extremism, 93 percent of Americans agree that if you were to use violence and justify that through your religion, that is extremist. And so that qualifies as violent extremism. What we really try to unpack in this research is that there's another type of extremism, which is social extremism. And if you do any kind of looking at some of the the new writing and some of the sort of the language here in North America, at least, uh, around how people are describing religion and people of faith. I mean, just yesterday I saw an article that talked about Franklin Graham, the religious extremist. And because he's purporting to view the world in a certain way. And this is an Mm. important shift that our leaders need to understand. So he's not like,
0: he hasn't got banners, he's not um, assaulting people. This is for what he thinks and what he believes.
1: Right, and how he talks about the world. And so what we found in the research was that 60% of adults believe that if you were to try to convert somebody else to your faith, that is a type of social extremism. Um, wow! So three, three. I three want all the
0: preachers of- to hear that. Okay. Yeah. So what I'm trying to do every Sunday is seen as extremist by who? By non-religious people, religious people, Christians, non-Christians.
1: This was a study done in, among U.S. adults, okay. and 60% of all adults say it's extremist if you were to try to convert somebody to your faith. If you try to pray for a stranger in public, 52% believe that's extremist. If you were to leave a good paying job to go pursue mission work, uh, 42% say that's extremist. Uh, if you were to wait till sex to have marriage, a quarter of Americans believe that that's extremist. And, and and what's interesting is, so that's just all adults. If you look at the non-religious segments of, of, of of, uh, adults, so the, the skeptics and atheists, they're even higher in their perceptions of this things being, these things being socially extreme.
0: Wow. So basically, David, what you're saying is what most of us, because there's a lot of church leaders and even the marketplace leaders, most of you who listen, you're involved in a local church. Most of what we're trying to do week in and week out is now increasingly seen as extremist.
1: It is. And I think it's important to understand for a lot of people, um, some of this is like it's no big deal in that um, people like to see things that are extreme. There's a certain side to our culture that wants to imagine that that there are are ways that christians or people of other faiths can be extreme and that that you know part of the challenge we have in our culture is how do we make room for people who are different like muslims are going to practice their faith in a different way than than mormons than evangelicals than catholics and so on one level people are saying if you want to practice your faith if you want to do it in your church if you want to like if you want to believe those things that's all fine just don't let those beliefs Affect the broader culture. In fact, seventy nine percent of adults said you can believe whatever you want, just don't let those beliefs affect society, hmm. which is which is logically impossible. See, this is the thing for us as evangelicals. We approach this as a research company, as a distinctively evangelical company. And what I would say about evangelicals is we're the public persuaders. Obviously, about Jesus. Part mm-hmm. of the way we live mm-hmm. our live our lives is we actually think people should be persuaded to follow Christ. And more than that, we think that following Christ has a certain sort of set of beliefs and ideas uh, about sex, about sexuality, about about race being uh, and racism being essentially a sin problem that we're all born with sin, that education is part of the solution. But, you know, you can't just educate people out of their racist behaviors and and tendencies because it's fundamentally a sin problem in our hearts. And so these are very countercultural, deep ways of thinking that the the culture says, that's fine if you believe that in your church on Sundays, but just don't bring that into your workplaces or your neighborhoods, because that might that might actually be a trigger warning. You might offend somebody in the way they think. And that's, I think, why this new idea of social extremism is, is a rising challenge for the church to deal with.
0: Yeah, so you've got research behind it. But I mean, is some of this a little bit alarmist? Like, is it really that bad? Or are you seeing this anecdotally as well?
1: Well, it's a great question. Um, a part of what we do as researchers is try to help anticipate the future. And I feel sure. like through this research, we've been able to to sort of peel back and, and peer into the future in a way that in 10 years, it's going to be more difficult. And I could talk about this both in terms of the research. Um, if you're an institutional leader, if you lead a Christian college or university or school, if you're a pastor, and by the way, I think Christian education institutions are at the front lines of this because there is a, a, a very like it's not alarmist to say that for us, we're in California. There are specific ways in which legislatively, legally, uh, there is an active effort to disempower, if not see Christian universities and colleges sort of, you know, go away. And so, um, I mean, like the, the, the rumors are true about how significant the threats are to Christian institutions. Um, obviously the Christian community can continue to do many of the things that it has done for many years, but, but as a researcher, it's, it's a very interesting moment. And then here's a personal story. You know, my daughter, we go to, a, my daughter goes to public school, went to Christian school through uh, eighth grade and then went to public high school. And, you know, one of the local high schools will do, you know, kind of what color is your rainbow? They're encouraging students mm-hmm. as freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors, you know, 13 to to 18 years old. Uh, 14 to 18 years old to, to to choose what sort of sexuality they they believe they are right. um, And we can have a whole conversation about that But that's and that's by the way That's clearly the direction of our culture that people are more and more accepting of same-sex relationships so much So that that's who you are in your identity So if my daughter who's on the journalism program were to write a story about how maybe Her color in the rainbow is a more traditional point of view on sexuality that in fact trying to find our identity You know, in our sexuality is not the right way of doing it. You know, she was sort of reprimanded, uh, in her, in her journalism course from even expressing that opinion. That's the social extremism place that we're at, that there is, uh, such a powerful movement, particularly on section sexuality, but also on issues of life and death and disability and racism here in California. We now have assisted, you know, uh, um, death, you know, you take a Yeah, we're debating
0: that in Canada as well, introducing assisted dying. It used to be called, interestingly enough, look at this, it used to be called assisted suicide. I don't know what it was called in California. Mm-hmm. And then in the last year, the whole public debate has shifted. It's not assisted suicide, which carries a stigma to it. It's assisted death.
1: Yeah. Uh, you see this on so many different levels, the language that we use, um, even at the Oscars, they were talking about uh, gender confirmation surgery, for the transgender community, uh, not gender reassignment, not sex change mm-hmm. as the, 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 you know, sort of the, the surgery it's gender confirmation. We want to confirm who you really are inside. And, um, this I think was one of the most shocking things about our, our research. And the thing that just literally left my jaw gaping open as I saw the early uh, returns from our polling was the degree to which our culture and the Christian community believes that the best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. Ninety-one percent of Americans now, and we haven't done the polling in, you know, Canada and other contexts, but we're doing that actually in 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 uh, the UK and Australia. We're, we're going to be getting that results back um, the next few months. But the vast majority of the developed world now believes that you should look within yourself to find yourself. You should think you should have the things you desire most in the world and we think that one of the fundamental shifts we're trying to describe in this new research and in the book is this larger shift from an external source of of authority the bible the church institutions society to an internal source of authority which is that you you yourself as a human being know yourself best and you can figure out your own path and you know sort of manner of success and that's actually a very fundamental shift. We can actually see it in really simple and kind of funny ways like when you get on an airplane uh, you know, you know do you follow the rules that you should put one bag up on top and one under the seat?
0: Uh not follow- if I don't get caught. <laughs> don't go there. Don't go there, right, David.
1: Come on. I mean, listen, there's all sorts of ways that we as humans think the rules apply to everyone else, but not to us. Yeah, I got
0: a ticket yesterday, my first speeding ticket in a long, long time, and I completely deserved it. Not really. But it's
1: hard. But it's hard. It's it's hard. Yeah, exactly. We have this very fundamental human problem, which is that we don't we don't think we're guilty. But what we think is really happening again at Barna, we're trying to help you understand the spirit of the age and what's happening and how this is being like. You know, the, the sort of the underlying trends that are happening and what we would say that was so uh, remarkable from this, like what the peer number of people who are believing it, 76% of practicing Christians, 91% of Americans believe that the best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. Hmm. You shouldn't criticize someone else's life choices. You should get the things that you really desire most in life. You should, you should, you have a right, you have an right. obligation to pursue those things. So this, we, we call the new moral code. And we think that the church at its best should be aware of and living counterculturally to that new moral code. And maybe the most heartbreaking part of this research is the degree to which the church really is not all that countercultural on these on these points. However, we believe that the church can and will rise to the occasion to see those things and then articulate a better and different way.
0: Well, I think one of the things you're doing, David, you and Gabe, are are articulating something that a number of us in leadership have felt. And if you want to call it, um, you know, the cultural values are shifting. You look within yourself, you know, sex is fine as long as it's consenting. There doesn't have to be any kind of a relationship as long as it's consensual, it's irrelevant to marriage. Um, There are no rules when it comes to gender other than, you know, sexuality, same-sex attraction, other than consent, which seems to be a, a cultural thing. Values drive belief, don't they? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. one, of, one of the things I think a lot of churches or, or church leaders are struggling with, and I'll speak for a moment to the preachers like me, is it feels, we did a, a series last September at Connexus Church called Rubber Soul. And it was basically trying to talk about the new morality. And I spent the entire first week basically just trying to explain to people that everybody's got a moral standard. And can we just bring this out on the table and look at it rather than trying to say this is what you should believe? I guess what I'm trying to say is if your value system is significantly different than a previous generation's or a biblical worldview, then your belief system is going to follow your value system. Is that something a trend that you see or can you comment on that?
1: Uh, it absolutely conforms to the things we're finding in the research and that is that there are these underlying values that we don't even know how to articulate, but we we see them in our films, we read them in our papers, in our books, we hear them in our music, which is really about, you know, you, you ought to have the things that you really want most in life and it's about experience and about, you know, sort of living a full and complete life. And there's all these things that are, in, in some ways, just, just like... I heard this great uh, podcast recently where you know s- Satan doesn't create anything; he just distorts things. Mm-hmm. And so, so much of what we believe is actually a not not um, it's a distortion of what the the Christian idea, the the the, the 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 theologically rich way of thinking, which is that yes, life is to be enjoyed. It's Jesus came for us to have life and life to the full, but it's not about ourselves. You, you know, Rick Warren's classic line from Purpose Driven Life: "It's not about you." Hmm. And so that. That countercultural narrative, especially in the screen age, in an era of, of digital technology and Instagram and you know selfies, and it, you know it's like those are all it's all cool, except that it creates a certain sensibility that I should be the one um, at the center of all of this. Mm. And listen, we talked about this a year ago, which is that the challenge for preaching in that context then is that people are actually coming only like 1.7 times a month, even yeah. if they're really regular churchgoers. So your whole effort to create a real countercultural way of thinking about life and morality and how to confront these sort of idols of our age of a God of self, which is really what's happening now is that we're, we're, you know, we're putting the self at the center of our spiritual journey. It's very difficult to train and educate and disciple people to a different way of thinking because they're just not in the building often enough for you to build that kind of countercultural mindset. So um, preaching is very important. It's just never been less sufficient to bring about the kind of discipled lives that we hope to bring.
0: It it kind of feels you could easily get to the point where you think, oh, my goodness, is this just a losing battle? Like, are we just going to lose this one and... Why don't we just throw in the towel, or will be this little fringe movement? How do you respond to that?
1: Well, um, I think the the most important way I could describe this is I could not be more hopeful and um, optimistic about the way the Christian community can and I believe will respond to a lot of this sort of thing and, and is responding um, first, it's to recognize that there's a ton of kingdom things that are already happening in our churches and in our communities mm. through Christians, and to recognize those and do more of them. So Hebrews ten twenty four says we should look for ways to motivate one another's to acts of love and good works. Yes, and 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 you know I just want to encourage you know uh, the listeners today that your churches are already doing really incredible things as people of good faith in the world, and we should encourage that and acknowledge. We should bring it on the stage and on Sundays and in our newsletters and in our t- tweets and facebook posts and many other places say hey what this couple is doing when they adopted this person when they visited that refugee family when they gave generously when they prayed for their public school when they volunteered to be on the school board when they re- did this program like that those do you see how that's creating mm-hmm. a, a a bubble of good faith it's creating a a moment of a countercultural narrative when they gave up their their own you know, desires to serve this greater good because of their love for Jesus. I mean, those are things we have to acknowledge and they're already happening. The, the second thing is to realize, um, Gabe and I are really convinced through this research that the conditions in our culture to sort of zoom out the conditions in our culture in North America, some work we're doing in the UK. Um, I would think this is true in Canada as well. They're actually really ripe for the church to be revived. Hmm. Um, there is a certain sort of dead end. There's a certain sort of like hopelessness in our culture. There's a certain sort of way in which we think all this is going to play out that over the next two to four years, uh, you, you know, that the people are going to come to the end of themselves over the next number of years and that the church can be a countercultural response. Like we have this refugee crisis within Syria, we think there's a refugee crisis when it comes to sex and sexuality. We think there's a refugee crisis when it hmm. comes to how we think about human flourishing and and the need for you know like living as people of integrity and character and love for one another. And so we think the church will you know what happens in cultures isn't that revival sweeps over the population. The, the revivals begin within the church. They they happen because the people of God are revived to His purposes in their lives and they live counterculturally. the spirit of the age and we think that there is a tremendous opportunity that that's the conditions for revival and then renewal to break out um are actually really really right right here before us that should be pretty exciting it also means you know there's some dark days it's pretty it's pretty challenging we we you know uh we can see some of the the very um uh sort of depressing realities that make those conditions you know, so, uh, capable of, of possibly creating revival. And again, that's up to God, and to his, um, his work in the world. But what a privilege to see some of that possibly come come about in the next number of years.
0: We're gonna to get to uh, some of the ways that you can respond to this toward the end of the uh, conversation today, David. But it, what you're saying reminds me an awful lot of what Ravi Zacharias has had to say. Uh, he He probably will have already been a return guest on this podcast by the time this airs. And I was asking him in a recent conversation about the state of the church in different parts of the world. And he said, You know, in the West, it's very tough right now, but you should go to the former Eastern Bloc where they took God out of the culture for 70 years. He said, We fill stadiums with tens of thousands of young adults there. He said, You should go to the rest of the world. Like when you remove God from the culture, he says, Eventually they do exactly what you said. They run to the edge of it and they go, oh, This is horrible. And he said, so the children of the West now who grew up in a Christian era are rebelling against it, but give that a generation and, and, and he's confident they will come back. I just don't want to wait a generation, not in my country, not in your country. So I'd like to get going sooner or later. Frank Buehler, um, we got some listener questions. He wanted to know, what's the most frustrating finding for you personally based on your research and who is doing the best job of solving it, if anyone?
1: Well, I think there's a lot of things that are frustrating. I mean, being a researcher is a constant exercise of, of trying to find the internal source of of what God might be saying, because it can be a little depressing and discouraging seeing the way people respond to questions, yeah, and the, totally. the vanity, the vanity, the selfishness, the the um, you know the lack of of biblical thinking and that's even when we're interviewing christians right that's yeah. even when we're interviewing that's even when we're interviewing pastors we have a big study coming out next year called the state of pastors in january of 2017 and you know um, my dad's a pastor I, I think i would be a pastor if i weren't doing barna in fact i sometimes think about my role as being a public pastor uh huh. you know, use, using research as my as my tool for communication but um you know th- there's a lot of reasons to be frustrated and and i guess part of my this is just a bit of a personal story, but sure. you know, I spend a lot of time in Ecclesiastes uh, because for me as a leader, um, you know, it it helps me deal with my moments where I'm frustrated or discouraged, or I feel like I'm at the end of myself, when my ambition to see the world changed or my hope to see, you know, the church change in a certain way. Um, God reminds me that it's all vanity, um, Mm -hmm. that it's like, like chasing the wind and that it's, that it's his church and he cares. And it's the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom. Um, and so, so that's one response is that people I think that are really rooted in, in scripture can see God's heart for his people and, and our own, even, you know, even the best of us as pastors and spiritual leaders, our own brokenness. So that's, that's one thing I think, um, we, we had a really fun experience in Scotland last year. Uh, doing some research in that very post-Christian context. And it was amazing to see, just as you're sort of alluding to, uh, Carrie, that in these very post-Christian contexts like Scotland, that millennials were actually very interested in what the Bible had to say about finances and dating and relationships and um, sex and sexuality and, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of different, like very practical questions. It was almost as if, well, we're trying everything else. Maybe the Bible actually has something (laughs) meaningful to say. And, um, and I think there's a real, there's, again, this is why I think I'm very hopeful about where the culture could go in and, and the speed of cultural change is one in which, Hey, maybe we don't have to wait many generations because if we could have a response, if the spirit would work, in such a way that would allow us to be ready for those refugees, for these people that are, you know, waiting for deeper answers. Uh, the church, I think, could be part of the the solution. The community of of saints could actually be part of what uh, what this culture is so desperately needing. Hmm,
0: that's uh, that's good. Um, a couple of other questions for you. Uh, anything else that just before we leave this and start to dig into solutions that would be shocking to those of us who lead and those of us who are listening as being viewed as extremist i mean you mentioned even trying to invite someone to become a christian can be seen that way uh talking publicly about your views that sex belongs within marriage or you know certainly opinions about uh the role of marriage can be seen as extremist in these days anything else that might be surprising
1: well, I think one of the things we haven't talked about yet that was a big shock to me was the fact that um, we, we asked about whether you could have a natural and normal conversation with people of a particular group. And we went through five different categories of individuals who are sort of, you know, in the states and in, in, in uh, many different contexts, they would be sort of minority groups. They're less than 10 percent of the population. So Muslims, Mormons, atheists evangelicals, the LGBT community. So we talked about these five different groups and we asked people, what groups do you think it would be difficult for you to have a natural and normal conversation with? 73% of Americans said it would be difficult for them to have a natural and normal conversation with a Muslim, 60% with a Mm -hmm. Mormon, 56% with an atheist, 55% with an evangelical, and then 52% with someone in the LGBT community. So listen, part of what we conclude is that we have a a conversational crisis. We have the difficulty. We're all very tribalized. We're living within our own small kind of, you know, sort of faction and tribe and segment. And we have a hard time talking with people who are different from us. And added to that, we found that evangelicals were some of the most significantly challenged when it came to conversation. So 87% of evangelicals said they would have a difficult time having a natural and normal conversation with a Muslim. 67% said they'd have a a difficult time having a natural and normal conversation with a Mormon. 85% of evangelicals said they'd have a difficult time uh, with an atheist. And 87% would have a difficult time with someone who's part of the LGBT community. To me, this just is a – like a massive alarm bell for spiritual leaders that we need better spiritual practices. When it comes to conversations, we need to, we need to dial down the fear and we need to help people understand you are called to be salt and light. This is going to happen through natural and normal conversations. Those are going to be difficult conversations. We need to help prepare you for those. God is asking us to help people have good conversations as, as, part of our, you know, command to go into all the world and to make disciples. That doesn't just happen through pixie dust and, you know, PowerPoints or even great sermons. Uh, It has to happen through conversations.
0: So it's one thing to kind of look at the culture. And I think it's good that you and Gabe are doing that and that you're doing great research on that. But let's look in the mirror for a second. To what extent have we made this worse? I mean, one of the things that occurred to me, and I've read most of the book, I don't know whether you specifically address it. And if you do, forgive me. But 20 years ago, we didn't have social media. It was really the, the preachers who framed the dialogue, the conferences that, that framed the dialogue. But we think about the Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage from 2015, and you look at that, and I, I remember the outcry on social media from literally millions of evangelical Christians, which frankly often was hateful. Do we make ourselves seem more extreme by the proliferation of the dialogue that we consume on social media? And and do you think that's part of the, the perception problem?
1: Absolutely. And I think this is where this difficult conversations where it's exploding into all sorts of uh, crazy perceptions and we're adding to the problem because we haven't learned how to express uh, this, the spiritual fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control mm. on Facebook. And so to be people of good faith, we have to learn all these new disciplines. It's all it's all age-old, you know, it's all age-old lessons about how to be human, how to be Christian. But we're having to play those things out in a totally new context of right. this digital this digital commons. And so uh Christians are absolutely creating many of these negative perceptions. And the problem is. And this is the message of Galatians. I mean, this is not like, well, hey, if you just had social media coaching, you'd really do it better. The problem is that Jesus is just as concerned with self-righteousness in the church and in our Facebook posts as he is with unrighteousness in the world and in culture. And so uh, until we can understand how, you know, Galatians says, having begun our lives in the spirit, we now try to perfect it through human effort. Mm. We try to, you know, we, we believe in Jesus for our salvation, but we try to convert the world through our moralism. Yeah, and and that's that's inherently not the gospel, and so it's it's actually an antith- it, it is in a, it is uh, antithetical to the message of grace and the gospel.
0: Yeah, and I think you know I see that a lot. Where basically, if we don't like the culture, we just yell at it, and. Right. I wonder why we do that. I wonder, and I wonder if that helps us. You know, Jeff Henderson at Gwinnett Church has quite famously in the last few years talked about, we want to be about it. We want to be a church that's about what we're for, not what we're against. And I think often Christians just get to be seen as the crazy person that's angry about everything and we've got it right. You've got it wrong. Listen to us. And there's no love in the message.
1: Uh, it, I couldn't agree more. Um, the, the big challenge I think that we, we talk through is how to lead with love, that love is the preeminent virtue, that love never fails, that we should be defined by the spiritual fruit in our lives, that being people of good faith means that love is just, it's just part of who we are in every way. Um, and then how do we bring conviction and our beliefs and our orthodoxy to the way we live all that out to our love. And we see that, you know, this is a this is a really broad brushstroke, but I think what I see as a researcher is that a lot of older and established and more kind of conventionally thinking Christians are really good at belief, but kind of anemic in their ability to to be led by love. Hmm. Um, And then we see a lot of millennial Christians who are really, really good at love and understanding culture and being engaged with culture, but they're kind of anemic in their convictions and why a rich, historic understanding of theology and and why their beliefs actually matter. So we were trying to kind of right-size that on both ends of the continuum, not that our project is any sort of solution, but we were sort of saying, listen, younger believers and those that tend to emphasize love only have to understand that your convictions matter that your beliefs will matter to you know in a hundred years if we're the same as everybody else no one will see any difference in gospel oriented christians and to those christians that are really focused around belief and conviction and hammering the culture listen if you're not led with love if you don't understand the posture that is required now to be a daniel in a a digital Mm -hmm. babylon you're just not going to make the difference that god's calling you to make you're actually you're actually out of step with culture by the way The the subtitle is being irrelevant and extreme. We're actually trying to give Christians permission to be irrelevant and extreme, like being extreme for the sake of the gospel is what we're called to be being trying to pursue relevance for the sake of, you know, church attendance or, Mm. um, you know, just just the, the wrong reasons is actually part of the problem. So we want you to be irrelevant and extreme. But as Jesus calls you to be right,
0: extremely loving, extremely different than the culture. Zach Bracken was asking on that note, he uh, had a question for you that came in on Twitter, you know, what are the differences between the generations, say millennials and boomers? So I love the way you characterize that. You said uh, the millennials, to paraphrase you, are really good at loving, but maybe don't have the theological framework to know why we should live differently as Christians. And then the older generation, boomers or older, might be really good at saying, no, this is the way it should be. And yet... Um, not very good at loving. They just yell a lot.
1: Yeah. Well, one quick way to answer that question from Zach is to say that we're seeing a huge difference in the questions about scripture. So part of the reason that millennial Christians are struggling in new ways than boomer Christians is that they are outnumbered in our culture by people who are skeptical of of scripture. So with boomers, there were a, a small hand. I literally have the numbers. I could show them to you on the PowerPoint slide, but like with boomers practicing Christians who people who are engaged with scripture are about one-to-one with the number of people in our culture. if, if just boomers who say the book is, the, the, the Bible is just a book written by men. You shouldn't trust it. It's a book of, you know, like, you know, whatever. It's like there's there's sort of a counterbalancing within the boomer generation between very active Bible engaged Christians and those who think the Bible is just is just a story of mythology among millennials. The big shift that we're seeing, and this is an important one to realize uh, the size of the Bible engaged millennial is slightly smaller than it would be with boomers, but their light is very bright. They're super Bible engaged. They're very serious about the Bible. Mm. Uh, churches that are growing with millennials are actually teaching the Bible very vividly ex- expositional kinds of teaching. They read the Bible in groups like the, the, I couldn't emphasize enough that the churches that are doing good work with millennials are taking the Bible mm. extremely seriously Um, However, what's interesting is that millennial practicing Christians, if you compare then the number of millennials who are skeptical of scripture, it's there, there, there's more than twice as many, um, millennials in our culture who actually say the Bible isn't just a book written by men. It's actually a book of oppression that has been used for centuries to marginalize, to hurt people, to oppress people. It's a repressive book. I mean, the language about the Bible it's it's you know it's this idea of social extremism. If you really believe the literal truth of Scripture, if you say it's authoritative in the way you should live, uh, the the level of skepticism that is happening for millennials is is a, as an, is is an, it's a tsunami of of skepticism.
0: So it's more and polarizing so, than in the millennial generation. In other words, people who deeply suspect the accuracy, utility, or even inspiration, or or the the uh, you know all of that of Scripture. And then those who really accept the scripture as it's been historically understood are digging in, they're rolling up their sleeves, and they love the scripture, and their light shines bright. So
1: yeah, and wow. it's almost like you can almost you can almost see a, like think about it from a, a almost like let's use a, a geologic metaphor: the boomer generation, everything's kind of a big flat pl- floodplain, and and there's not a lot of geographic differences even between right. the very Bible engaged boomer and the the skeptical boomer. Most people are sort of friendly or neutral towards Scripture. It's just kind of one big flat plane. There's not a lot of differentiation. With millennials, when it comes to Scripture, there is like, you know, the the two big flood banks, and, Hmm. and it's almost as though this very deep canyon, and you have a much deeper polarization. The middle is all sort of eroded out. People are saying, listen, I'm either for Scripture or I'm massively against Scripture, I don't. I'm not. I'm not like sitting on on the banks on this one, waiting it out. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sort of sitting in the middle on this, sort of waiting it out. Um, now that's a. That's we. There's some scary realities to that because it says that uh, y- these young millennials who are committed to scripture are going to have to work this out in a very complex, aggressively hostile. You know, y- y- you're you're literally afraid to speak up. You're afraid to write that. That uh, article for your school newspaper because it's, it's so countercultural to have this point of view, um, and and that's really the, I think the big difference is generationally. And, and scripture, it turns out, is one of the strongest predictors of a person's faith. When we look at millennials, it's not whether you're attending church as a youth group uh, attender. Whether, even whether your parents have a uh, religious faith, it's your views and ac- activities and your engagement with scripture, your your perception that it's authoritative. It's one of the strongest correlations with whether you're going to stick with your faith even through your college years and into your young adult years.
0: Wow didn't know that that's good to know so yeah. in the book you use this metaphor cuz i want to i want to get to solutions and you do offer i mean you, your whole book solves this right completely solves this cultural dilemma <laughs> no. but you do have some helpful advice along the way and you talk about melting pot versus potluck you mention a true tolerance and a false tolerance and i think this is something that that you articulate that helps a lot of us understand um what we're feeling and so there's this idea that Christians are intolerant. Our culture is very tolerant, but sometimes the tolerance our culture has is actually a false tolerance. Can you explain that?
1: I can explain that. the um, The difference between fake tolerance is where you're tolerating all the things that are politically correct to tolerate, mm-hmm. and then things like social extremism or religion that seems like it might be a little bit bad or it might it might hurt people's around you that that you know so, sort of socially hurt people that's where it starts to get into, um, you know, we, we don't want to tolerate that kind of Christian. And so the idea of a melting pot in, you know, in North America, our cultures are very diverse, pluralistic, religiously, pluralistic, um, generationally, ethnically diverse. And part of what we argue in the book is that there's a difference between assimilation and accommodation and assimilation means you kind of go along to get along. You, 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 play by the fake tolerance rule book, you try to avoid topics that are really difficult to talk about. And then true tolerance is really more accommodation, which is we say, we want to try to make room, like when you check into hotel, you're checking into accommodations, there's, there's room that is made for your, your, um, your living in that, you know, area for a period of time. And so the church needs to make a make accommodation, we think that Daniel is a classic example in scripture of what this would look like in a pluralistic culture. Uh, first, he learns the language and literature of Babylon for three years. He becomes the secretary of state for three different, you know, rulers uh, in, in that time. Um, he keeps, he advocates to keep all the pagan philosophers alive and Daniel two uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, tries to have them all killed. And Daniel actually says, Hey, let's make accommodation. Let's just not just assimilate and go with, go with the trends that would be fake tolerance. We want we want true tolerance, which says, "Hey, I'm going to go in and, and rely on the power of Yahweh to interpret your dreams." We believe that there is a that this is the the only true God, and yet don't just kill all the pagan philosophers because you're you're you know angry. That, that that's that's a fake tolerance. Hmm. Uh, and, and so we think there's a way for us to live this out. And so teaching accommodation, teaching these difficult conversations, helping the Christian community understand that listen, pluralism isn't a dirty word, right? Being in a community of diversity, being with Muslims is not antithetical to your faith. And you should also try to pursue Jesus in their lives to see them transform for the sake of the gospel. Those, those two truths can exist at once. And that's the way of accommodation. Um, that's, the way of, that's the way of Daniel.
0: Do you think true accommodation or pluralism is going to be difficult for a lot of Christians?
1: I do uh and I think that's the big challenge that we're wrestling with it It's reflected in the data having these difficult conversations is is hard it's I don't want to now. be in
0: a room with a Muslim. I want to be in a room with a whole bunch of Christians who agree with me,
1: yeah, uh, mm. it feels like you know it when mm. I, when we do we sometimes use our research in um in here in Los Angeles with entertainment companies or working on various film projects trying to help them understand the Christian market or we work with various businesses sure. that try to take and translate our market research for them. I actually love the process of trying to like it's almost like speaking in a different language because I have to be careful and thoughtful and intentional in the language so that I can translate this into into the into what's happening in the in the business meeting that we're having. And I think actually most of the people in our congregations are more used to that than we realize Uh, they're looking for permission. I mean, they're doing that in their businesses. They're doing that in their neighborhoods. They're doing that with their kids, with their kids, friends who aren't the same faith. Like we're all, we're all comfortable. We want diversity. We just don't know how to live in that world. And so we think that Hmm. churches can, uh, you know, apply this sort of, again, it's a Galatians idea. It's like for freedom that you've been set free, You, you can pursue diverse relationships and friendships. You can pursue, um, a godly vision of accommodating pluralism, it doesn't mean we say all all these religions are the same. Pluralism is not universalism, right? To say we live in a culture that's plural and we accept and love you, we lead with our love, we want to make accommodations for people who are different, is not the same to say we would elevate your theological understanding of the world to be equal to that of Christianity and therefore we universally accept you because we're just all we're all just one humanity that's not the way of Christ what is the way of Jesus is like the good samaritan where we break down social barriers we we find ways of loving people we find ways of having these really incredibly difficult conversations but that produce true spiritual fruit uh, in in our communities of love joy peace patience kindness gentleness and self-control that that that, that is how pluralism uh, can be a gift to the church, and we, as the church, can be a gift to a very diverse uh, nation and community and and neighborhood hmm. so
0: in many ways, then David, I mean, you kind of look at your own friendship circle, and when I what I said earlier, I kind of meant sarcastically or facetiously, right? like you know it's like I just want to be in a room with people who think what I think, believe what I believe, and live the way I live. But a good challenge for us if we want to live in good faith moving forward would be, are you actually in personal dialogue with people who believe radically different things than you do? Um, you know, Do you have unchurched people in your social circle over for dinner? Do you, do you have people of different faiths and different backgrounds and different worldviews that you're actually engaging with and you stay friends with and you learn how to engage with them in a loving, respectful way? Is that a good place to start?
1: Absolutely. And one of the topics we take on in the book is issues of racism, And, uh, this, this whole question of, you know, here's a practical example we give in the book is if your speed dial on your cell phone, the last 10 calls are all people that are of the same ethnicity Mm. and possibly even of the same gender other than your family. Uh, you know, then, then we're doing this wrong because we, we haven't cultivated the kinds of diverse friendships. You know, we have an almost an implicit Mm -hmm. racial bias. And so, um, you know, th- th- these are very complicated and, and multi layered things. I know a lot of leaders are dealing, are struggling, are thinking through this stuff. They're already doing. Again, we said this earlier, we should acknowledge that a lot of good stuff is already happening. Um, but there's more we can do, and there's more ways. And, you know, you talk about the solutions. Actually, about a third of the book goes through kind of our current cultural context and the problems we face. And then two thirds of it are the solutions, ways for Christians to think about these things. You know, for example, we go through the, the solutions are part of it is we need to ask better ask and answer better questions and we say that we should teach our communities to ask and answer four questions what's wrong, what's right, what's missing, and what's confused hmm. and so when we when we answer what's what's wrong about our culture, we can say and that's by the way where most people's most Christians begin Stop. and on what's wrong yeah, <laughs> yeah. like it's just, it's just it's all wrong, but what's right about it is that we can find the good and um when we, when we answer, like, what's good in a, a, the Muslim community? What's good in the Mormon community? What's good about the LGBT community? And and then and why would what, you ask that?
0: Why would you ask that question? Because there are some Christians who are like, the only good thing is in Christianity.
1: The most important reason is because, as Christians, we believe that every human being is created in the Imago Day, is created in mm-hmm. the image of God. Yeah. And that there is something... And, and when we only understand the fallenness of humanity, the brokenness, we're only understanding a partial description. So we, you know, we make this argument. Gabe does a great job in the book *The Next Christians* of the, the full gospel of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And if we don't understand the creation, that God has created good in the world, that you know, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. That that uh, there, there are many ways in which the Christian community can learn from. From others that mm-hmm. that you know, obviously the only truth is revealed through through Jesus, but but Jesus doesn't always show up in the ways that we expect him to do, yeah. And um and so we we could you know sort of like a C.S. Lewis classic stories of Aslan, you know, like he, he's he's a he's um he's good, but he's not safe. And mm-hmm. so when, we, when we're not willing to a- ask what is good about the world in which we're living, you know, the the my brother-in-law who is same same-sex attracted who lived. With many partners through his years, he ended up passing away of HIV AIDS. What was good about the LGBT community uh, during his final weeks was the way they rallied around him, supported him, loved him. Um, And for me, and we tell the story in the book, um, even as a committed Christian who who was Brian's brother-in-law, my ability to love him was very stunted. I, I was, what was wrong and missing and confused was my response, what was right about that Experience was the way the LGBT community responded to his health needs and to his final days on earth before he passed away. Wow. And so, if we're not if we're not willing to a- ask and answer these really tough questions of what's right, what's wrong, what's missing, and what's confused, we can often seem as one dimensional as we often are, which is we just are uh, kind of loud, angry critics of culture rather than hopeful. Gospel Christians trying to help this uh, this new generation understand what it means to be Christian.
0: So, what is good faith? Walk us through in these last few minutes, just sort of, you know, your heart on where we need to go. And there's so much more we we you know that's in the book and and that we we won't have a time to get into.
1: Well, we forgot to talk about uh, John Orberg and his uh, his idea that good faith is me being in uh, Lederhosen and uh, yes. singing up to a brass band.
0: That's true. Actually, yeah. John Ortberg wrote in and he said, yes, ask David why he loves polka music and constantly dresses in lederhosen. Talk about (laughs) unchristian.
1: So I love love John. Thanks, John. He often often gives me such great, um, uh, great, great fun on Twitter. That's worth a book, I think. Well, the thing was that I the reason I dress in lederhosen so often is that for me, I think that it all goes when the game is over, it all goes back in the box. And. (laughs) so that's a little a little, uh... <laughs> a
0: little John Ortberg humor. I've got to have him on the podcast. John's been such a great influence in my life in his books and his teaching and his leadership. And uh, that was uh, my favorite tweet of the year so far when he tweeted that at me and you last night. That was great. Uh,
1: such a great sense of humor. Well, hey, listen, one of the things does. that this represents in terms of good faith is, We as Christians ought to have a pretty good sense of humor. I think this is one of the Mm. most important skills that we should be uh, cultivating in our lives. We should be able to laugh at ourselves. We shouldn't take ourselves so seriously. So Um, good. And at the same time, we should be more convinced than ever that that Jesus has something good for us in in Scripture. That this is, you know, this is in fact good news, not just because you get to heaven, uh, but because it actually— Gives us a way to be human in an era of Facebook, in an era of, you know, the 2016 political election uh, here in the United States. What a what a what a disaster in so many levels. Yes. Uh, and and so the, the the truth is that it's good news in 2016. It's good news for how it is that we're going to live this out. It's good news for millennials. We talked earlier about some friends of ours who you know have found that being honest about our faith being able to ask really tough questions by saying, you know, like nine years ago, the church is really unchristian. We, we should admit our faults and we should be honest with ourselves Um, that that actually is good news to a generation of skeptics. And so that's my, that's my hope for this project is, and we saw this actually, you know, we just launched the book three weeks ago. We went on, uh, we were in 20 cities in 14 days and it was such a fun, fun privilege to do this with my good friend, Gabe. And what, what I saw in the hearts of people, we spoke at several churches on Sundays. We did other events and, uh, you know, afterwards we, we had so many people, young millennials, especially, but parents and grandparents who would come up and say, you know, my, my kid is transgender and we don't know how to have a conversation about these very critical questions. We had one young woman who came and said, I'm a gay millennial Christian. And you know, the, the words you use, the language, the, the, the idea like you gave me some hope. I just pr- she literally said through tears, you gave me some hope. I prayed this morning that God would give me a way way forward. We give in the book a way to think about this in a historic, traditional way. And yet we're trying to be honest about the ways the church has has failed on these very critical questions. A young woman came up and said, "I'm a creative, I'm a designer and I haven't been to church for a long time and um, the fact that you talked about vocation and calling as a way to be part of a good you know a good faith Christian again through tears it was like I've never heard this before and so that's my hope for this. I mean you know I, I feel like I approach this research with the heart of the pastor I see the the, the ways in which our churches can sometimes be so so safe. Um, like, you know, unlike Aslan, we're like, we're, we're trying to be so nice and safe and comfortable. And we, we, we end up kind of sanding off the rough edges of these difficult conversations in a way that we experienced over the last three weeks that young people, especially, but, but all generations are just so aching to have a deeper, safer, mm-hmm. more honest conversation about what it means to be a Christian, in a very complicated, um, often very hostile environment. So those are, just a few of my my reactions to that question but it's um it's a heart to see you and y- y- you as a leader as you know as a communicator as a pastor carry. obviously a lot of your your listeners are going to be are going to be um communicators or leaders or creating communities to try to just to, to try to disciple people and so my heart is how do we help disciple people in an era when these cultural values and this this idea of how to be Christian is, is just overwhelming, uh, to so many. And so we, we try to give people hope, a roadmap, some good ideas, some, some, you know, language to maybe, um, you know, create that kind of counterculture as a Christian community.
0: In many ways, it's about adopting a whole new attitude and a whole new stance toward the world. It's a new, po-
1: a new posture. New yeah. posture. And it's, it's not an old one. It's, um, Jesus models it so often mm-hmm. in his interactions in the world. Um, but it's, but it's at various points, What does happen It's different is the the, the way in which the Christian community orients to its cultural context. And that's what, as a researcher, I love is to say, hey, the context is different. Human nature doesn't change. God's nature doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our cultural context is different. Our technological tools, these all change the way that that spiritual reality gets played out. And if we're not aware of that we won't, we won't be good stewards of our moment of leadership. And that's where I would love to end, which I just like, I love this culture. I love the moment that we have, what a privilege that we can be in an era when, when Google, I mean, this is Google is teaching our kids about sex and sexuality at, at, you know, Google search, you know, how to ask a, a, how to ask somebody on a date, you know, you know, like like it's a, it's a crazy world that we live in and what an amazing opportunity that we have As God's servants to be a part of that, I just, I think it's, I shake my head in awe at the opportunities that we have as leaders today to be a part of that, um, figuring out what it means to be faithful in this context.
0: Well, what I appreciate is I think you're helping us get our heads around some of the language and the attitude, the stance, as you say, the posture that we need to make a difference. David, as always, fascinating, riveting. I, I, this has been helpful to me and, uh, reading the book. It's a great idea. I would hope, uh, people would click on through. If you haven't got a copy yet, make sure you pick it up. Good faith. David Kinnaman, Gabe Lyons. David, thank you so much.
1: Kerry, I appreciate you as a brother and a friend. And it was fun talking even before the podcast. And of course, during, during the the session here today, I I love you. I appreciate your heart for Jesus, uh, and your desire to invest in leaders. So thanks for having me today. Well,
0: it's a hundred percent mutual. Thanks, David. Well, there is so much more that we didn't even get a chance to get into, isn't there? And uh, really, seriously, you can get all the links to his book, Good Faith, at Newhoff.com slash episode 82. And it's a great read. It really, really is. So it, you'll want to look at that. And there's a lot more that we just couldn't get into. I know I'm going to have David back again. Maybe when that pastor thing is revealed in January, the, the, the study is sort of made public. I would love to talk about that and uh, sort of the state of what pastors think and what they know about the Bible and how we approach theology. Just fascinating stuff as always. Hey, uh, I also said that Ravi Zacharias would have been a guest. He's actually up next week. I, I got the sequence wrong. So if you subscribe, you get Ravi Zacharias next week in your inbox. And I ask him what makes for great preaching and what's wrong with preaching in the church today. Great, short, but powerful interview As any time with Ravi is. And you want to make sure you get that, just hit subscribe. It's free. And just a reminder this is April. My goodness, we're going to be together in Atlanta if you're going to Orange Conference or you're going to Rethink Leadership, uh, because that's coming up in just a few weeks' time. And I would love to see you there. If you haven't yet registered, you can try to squeak in. If you can still find room, you can go to theorangeconference.com or rethinkleadership.com. I'd love to see you at one of those. And in the meantime, I really do hope that our time together this week has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to
1: help you lead like never before.